0: Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to an episode of the Audio Signals podcast with Marco Ciappelli. In this new season, Audio Signals is repositioning its antennas, focusing not just on the stories, but on the storytellers. In our modern hybrid analog digital society, the art of storytelling has never been more vital or displayed such a diverse array of forms. Recognizing this, our conversations will spotlight the narrators, providing a unique exploration into the minds behind the narratives. From authors to podcasters, visual artists to songwriters, and everything in between, we will engage with all who contribute to this extraordinary tapestry of human experience. We are all made of stories, after all.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Marco Ciappelli. Welcome to another episode of Audio Signal Podcast, where we recently repositioned the antennas to talk with uh, authors but uh, not only I, it's not just about authors of books or uh, playwright it's about any kind of story that uh, that we share that could be in music, it can be in, uh, in video, film, uh, even painting. Any artist for me is a story. And to be honest, everybody has a story to share. We are all made of stories. Now, in this case, actually, it is about the book and it's about a story that uh, when I saw it, uh, um, it reminded me of one of those stories, um, like uh, kind of like the Da Vinci code that I found very, very complicated and is always think like that's the kind of story i will never be able to to write myself i'm more versus a fantasy type of style so i think it requires a lot of research and a lot of motivation and uh, i'm not the one about you that is going to talk about that because i do have the author here with me and uh, his name is jeff Schechter. i hope i pronounced that correctly and we're going to talk about um, how he decided to write his first book from a completely different career and what the book is all about. So, Jeff, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Marco. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's very intriguing when I saw you uh, and, and um, presenting yourself as a guest and coming and talk about the book. I was like, this sounds like a story that I want to <laughs> not only read and learn about it, but the 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 motivation like what's the story behind the story but before that i want to know the story behind you jeff so if you can give a little introduction to our audience who, who you are
2: yeah sure i'd love to um you pronounce my name right it's jeff Schechter. yes um i've spent <laughs> uh the vast majority of my career the last 25 30 years as a experiential real estate developer um i was the coo of the company behind mall of america in minneapolis West Edmonton Mall in Canada and the American Dream in New Jersey. Um, For listeners that aren't aware, these are the three largest entertainment and retail centers in North America. They have like water parks, amusement parks, hotels, skating rinks, um, a lot of retail, uh, the best of the best, and aspirational and luxury retailers. So it's really like a, a mini city under one roof. And so I've been um, building and expanding and operating um, those projects most of my life. Um, the, the last of those three large projects was American Dream in New Jersey, um, an amazing center um, just located okay actually right across the skyline from Manhattan. And uh, the project was underway for quite a while. It had previous developers involved in um, the financial crisis that happened uh, a while back. And so we took it over and anticipated a relatively um, I don't know, small renovation, a little bit of lipstick, but it turned into a much more far-reaching endeavor. And we ended up building amusement parks and water parks. And it really took it to uh, to another level. And so I spent the last couple of years prior to COVID um, completing that, getting it open. Uh, when I got there, there was, you know, outside of legal and leasing, there was like a handful of employees. When I left, there was about 1,700 and so it was a matter of really getting the whole thing up and running operationally, you know, getting all the teams going, get corporate culture running. And just as we really put a bow on all that and opened uh, with some great fanfare, COVID hit. And uh, we had to obviously go, New York City was one of the first places that shut down. So uh, and that's obviously a, a large gathering center Um And so for us, it was really difficult. We were bricks and mortar retail and a pandemic and, you know, online shopping and whatever. So we had our work cut out for us. Um, When the center was closed for COVID, um, I moved my family to the Bahamas to ride out the ensuing chaos. And um, I found myself for the first time in a long time without a quote unquote nine to five. And uh, I'm a voracious reader. I love the whole storytelling piece. And I've always had in the back of my mind that you know I should I could write a book I should write a book and for the longest time I kept anticipating that it was going to be a a business book or something on negotiation um, and when it when it was time to put pen to paper so to speak um, I decided that I was going to go to what I loved which is fiction and uh, <laughs> while I was staring at the ocean one day and not a lot on my calendar uh, a reminder actually popped up from a, a program that I completed at Harvard Business School. I went to Harvard for, for three years, completed the OPM program there. It's owner-president management. It's like a EMBA, CEO finishing school type of course over three years worldwide. Um, attendance, so you get to meet a lot of really interesting and great people from around the world. And in one of those um, modules, we had uh, one of our professors bring a, a short-term, medium-term, and long-term goal to... Um, the class and had everybody, you know, do some ideation for a while and then come up with what you thought those three things were and then to actively put it into your calendar. And I remember coming up, you know, write a book was my long-term goal as a really <laughs> generic input. Um, and I remember it popping up and I fast forward one year and popped up again as supposed to, my, you know, I'll do that one time and fast forward one year. And uh, it came up on like a January 2nd that write a book, I'm looking out in the ocean thinking, you know what? this is my opportunity and so i uh <laughs> i started off on that trajectory
1: so you didn't have prior experience in uh, in creative writing i mean it, this was really something you had in mind and then you finally got your your hands on it and you you just went for it
2: yeah exactly i have wow. uh, i have uh, a, a tech background i'm a, I'm a tech guy no. computer guy um a lot of the systems and processes and things that I've put into place at our centers were all really tech focused. Um, and yeah, like really my, my creative outlet was, you know, in the design and in fabrication of what we're going to do. And it's like the centers that we have are, are pretty impressive and there's, um, a, a much more broad canvas than, uh, you would normally see at a shopping center. So I got to express right. my, my creativity through those venues but when it came to writing or storytelling this was uh this was a a one-off um to begin with but i fell in love with it i love the process i love the 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 end result obviously and uh yeah something way outside of my comfort zone
1: all right well that's fantastic because uh if you went from zero to this which is described as a action-packed thriller with, uh, I'm understanding a lot of reference in different cultures and historical period of time. And then there is a a pathogen involved into it. So it sounds very complex. So I I really, I'm curious, like, first of all, how this idea came, were you inspired by some movies that you saw, some other book that you read, or it's kind of linger a story in your
2: head? Um, all of the above actually anyway really, it gets to it gets to your intro when you're talking about you know storytelling and the the route that people take and you know just storytelling generally in people's lives um, I had this kernel of an idea um, and really it was a it was using elements of I'm, I'm a Jewish guy and I'm rel- relatively well read on uh, on our religion and culture and there's there's a lot of really fascinating, elements that have um you know what you see at face value and then there's like the story behind the story and so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of those things that I thought were really cool um I'm a big believe I I love Dan Brown's writing I think he's great I like um the action guys like Jack Carr um, and The Terminalist which is now a movie which is really good Lee Child and the whole Reacher series and so I had this uh, this desire to want to write like these people that I read uh, on a relatively, you know, regular basis. And uh, I actually told my kids, I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to write a book and it's going to be a bestseller. And then my huh? second <laughs> book is going to be how to write a bestseller for your first book. Like, <laughs> so, okay, that's great. <laughs> You've been drinking too much tequila uh, on the beach. And, right. uh, and so I actually, because I had no clue what I was doing, I opened up what I had. I brought, I don't know, like 50 books with me when I was in the Bahamas. I wanted to follow a, a, a format where it would at least have some semblance of like writing. So I cracked open the first page of uh, a James Rowland's novel. was um, also one of my favorite authors. And it was really like, you know, a paragraph of scenic description and then two lines of dialogue and then, you know, a scene setting and then something else. And so I really f- I had my own story, but I just said, okay, well, there's a paragraph of description. So I looked out and I described this ocean view that's in front of me and I'm a scuba diver. And so I talked, my, my opening scene was this whole like, scuba diving scene you know say so write what you know. But by the end of the chapter, it actually read like what I thought to be like a real book. So I kept running back into the house saying, oh my God, I actually wrote something that doesn't look terrible. Uh, <laughs> and and then chapter one turned into two, turned into 10, turned into 20. And before I left the Bahamas, um which would have been I guess May, May or June of 21, I had three quarters of the book um already penned. I finished most of it when I got back here and then went through um a relatively intense editing process. Um and then decided that uh you know I did a lot of reading on getting um representation from agents and getting the you know, do you want to go to traditional publishing route, do you want to go indie publishing route? And I'm a like I said before, I'm a voracious reader and that that's not always just the um fun stuff. And so in my own profession, you know, I'm I Dive deep into drawings, into the technology behind certain things, so I really get a, a granular understanding of how something works, and then I can make, make like informed decisions. And so, I kept that methodology when I wrote, and really wrote, d- decided to read everything there was to be read on publishing, indie publishing, traditional publishing, agents—you know, the whole thing—going from, from Kindle and Amazon and audiobooks. To get what I think is a pretty good understanding of the landscape for a new author, um, I'm really glad I did that after I wrote my book because after seeing it, I think it's such a daunting um, task that I'm not sure I would have ever wrote if I knew how hard it was going to be. After writing the book, was the easiest part of this whole process, <laughs> um, and so yeah, so I launched it in in um, August on August 8th, and uh, my first run sold out, my second run sold out, and. Um, a few weeks ago, it actually hit the bestseller list on uh, my techno-thriller genre for Amazon and on Kindle. Um, I was n- number 11 on Kindle and number 55 in print on Amazon. So my, my uh, prediction for right, getting a bestseller, and while it's not New York Times number one yet, uh, it's got a lot of love and uh, people seem to really um, enjoy the story.
1: Wow. That's, that's definitely a good way to start it. Uh, I guess then you went to your kids and you said, I told you.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then I roped them into helping edit. So I <laughs> have five boys and my two oldest um, got the ungrateful task. Of them. I've thanked them profusely in the books. What, were they giving you good feedback? Oh, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. My, my oldest, um, he's actually, he's just finishing his LSATs, going to law school. Um, had He didn't like my first cover that I worked on ad nauseum for months and he was playing around with AI and Dali too, and he yep. came up with a really cool inspiration. My original cover is a little more complex. It had like an element of a, I'm sure you may not see it, but the, the existing cover, the one that I published is a blue book. It's got a faint circuit board sort of watermark in the background and a, um, a, a Greek warrior's helmet on the front in profile. And it's just. But I
1: also of, see a DNA helix. Uh, DNA
2: helix. That's right. <laughs> there's a little, there's little bit of tidbits. The other one was like a, a cave looking at a Greek temple with like a shadowy mm-hmm. figure in the background. So it was like that. And it was orange. So vastly different book. And he was playing around with Dali too. And he's like, you know, Dad, this is like a lot more like, like impactful. Just right. has this like particular image. So we tweaked it just a little bit because, you know, as things come out of Dali, they're not very polished. And, um, and that ended up becoming after like, you know, eight hours, it turned into the the cover that I kept versus the three months of design and, you know, money spent <laughs> getting the first one right. going. But I'm, yeah. I'm happy with the way this turned out. And then both of them ended up reading the book, I don't know, probably five times right now and editing and going over the proofs. So they were, they were integral in getting um, the book to where it is today. Although as yeah. authors always say, all mistakes and, and errors are solely my own. So um, well, getting- you know,
1: those are those are part of the story, right? I mean, I, I let's go back to your inspiration, and I have read, you know, Dan Brown. I've fallen in love with him, but I, I also recognize how many of these books that I'm fascinated by, you know, puzzle solving and and intricate uh, plots. I always say my brain doesn't work like that. I consider myself a very creative person from a fantasy perspective my background is advertising and marketing I can be an art director like you were probably doing with your with your other business but to I want to go over the, the blueprint that you need to have when you write a book like this because I mean you have to connect a lot of dots and correct me if I'm wrong if you're so such a natural that everything really came but do you ever have to walk back on the story and be like, "Ouch, I need to, yeah, I, I need to rewrite something because it doesn't connect anymore."
2: So, it's the book reads very much like a Dan Brown, if I could be so uh, as bold as saying, but it reads like a Dan Brown book, and it's that it's a puzzle-driven thriller. It takes place all over the world. Um, you know, you're from the Vatican, Jerusalem, New York. Like it's it travels the globe. Um, mm-hmm. The, the only thing that I really had to rewrite was, uh, it, the, as I said, I was writing this in the Bahamas during, during the pandemic. And for the 1st let let's say maybe 10 chapters, there were elements of the COVID pandemic in the book. And so like, I remember just one particular thing like this, some guy was driving up the West side highway of New York. I used to live in New York. So I have like you know, the layout of New York when they're talking about this. And I used to be stuck in that traffic all the time, driving across the GW bridge to go to Jersey. And, uh, and so I said, you know, the traffic was light on the West Side Highway due to the pandemic and everybody being at home and little things like that that weren't like integral to the story, but it very much dated the story and mm-hmm. gave it reference to a point in time. And I do have date and time markers at the start of all my chapters, but they don't have a year. So it's just present day. And then there's a chronology that you can follow so that you're not um, I should say lost in the story, but you have a better frame of reference for when these when certain events are happening. And so, I did have to go back and reroute that. And so, it wasn't you know light traffic due to COVID. It was light traffic due to the drizzle and the grayness of the day and things like that. So, there was that was probably my only significant rewrite um, mm. as far as the story goes. I knew from the beginning how I wanted the story to end, and I knew that there were certain elements that I wanted to. Um, express and sort of build upon. And so I had those laid down as mile markers throughout the story. And then it was really just a matter of filling in the gaps. And so for those, I turned to what a rabbit hole that was, but turning to like conspiracy theories that would give like an air of legitimacy to certain of the, um, of the, of the elements of the story. Right. And so without giving too much of the story away, the, the general, plot is that there is a, uh, I'm going to call him a madman, but he's an eco-terrorist that is hell-bent on wanting to destroy the world um, because he is unhappy with what mankind has been doing to the planet from uh, an environmental perspective. And I think it's also very and you find yourself at times, like when you read the book, hopefully, like nodding along to some of the diatribes that this guy is going through because you know, nobody wants to see our planet destroyed his methodology to the solution is obviously um, destroying all of humanity is not a a feasible solution and so I think it's really important to have antagonists that you can relate to um, in some ways so they don't just seem like just these really terrible people and there's nothing in common there's no redeeming value to them because I don't think that you can create that connection in the story if you can't relate to somebody but if you can at least see their their paradigm and then, you know, obviously disagree with their response, but you have to have some sort of empathy for them. I think it really ties um, the reader into the, into the story more. And so he's created a, what seems to be an indestructible pathogen that is poisoning um, the grains and staple crops of the world and, uh, and our heroes of the day um, are trying to stop him. And so there's a race through and that's that's the gist of the book that they want to stop this mm-hmm. calamity because this pathogen would take hold in relatively quick fashion would create massive starvation um, the animals that are eating the crops are also dying so you have no you know plant life that's that's edible you'd have no um, livestock that would be edible and to be able to satisfy the demand of you know seven billion people uh, the world would turn inside out in relatively quick order and so they're trying to stop that um, the the elements are, are you find out that this pathogen is really something that has been around for a long time, and to stop it, they need to recover particular artifacts throughout history. Um, and they're like, I mean, these are the ones that people know, but it's like the Holy Grail. Um, there are certain artifacts they dig up at the resting places of like Adam and Eve, and um, you do a tour through like the Vatican uh, and the secret chambers of like what the Pope has. Um, racing all the way so it's it's got a lot of really cool elements and then when you find those particular artifacts each one is sort of a puzzle in and of themselves that leads to the next puzzle or the next location they have to find until ultimately um, they can find this um, hidden secret or this hidden source um, that they could use as a antidote to what's coming I'm trying not to give as much away because I want. People
1: yeah, to- no, I mean, I, I think you just said that's, enough. That's I was just- going to stop you. I was like, don't, don't give it up <laughs> all the way. Uh, sounds fantastic. And, and when you describe these, the location, um, I mean, the objects. Some of them are in the mythology realm in a way. We we don't know exactly what they look like, or or if they're there. But when you describe the the room of the Vatican's or or other places did you do a really heavy research to stick as much as possible to reality or did you kind of rewrite?
2: Yeah, so that's that's, a really good point. Um, I tried to do a little bit as as much as possible that's realistic. So I was actually with my family um, while I was writing that particular chapter. um, I had everybody in Rome. We were doing a little tour through Europe. So we went to to Paris and Rome and um, went to the Vatican. And so there there was as much... As much ink as i could spill that would keep everything as realistic as possible and then obviously when it came to the pope's hidden vault where all the big big secrets are they didn't invite me that wasn't part of the tour no you didn't ask so it's so it's great (laughs) to riff on it and i described it in really great detail but utilizing whatever elements that i saw and the design features that were in the vatican you could extrapolate as to if the pope did have a private vault what do you think it Mm -hmm. would look like and so there's like a golden cross laid into the floor and it's a really beautiful room. And it's got like this majestic sort of holy um, aura to it, et cetera. So, you know, no, nobody can tell me that's not what it looks like because I don't think anybody reading my book has been invited by the Pope to check out <laughs> the Vatican's innermost secrets or yeah. what they have in there. And so I leaned a lot on um, some conspiracy theories of, you know, what does the Vatican really have in, um, in their possession? And then, you know, there's a little bit of a of a scientific flair um, when they get to because there's nanotechnology that's involved and AI that's involved um, that play again really integral parts to the story. And so it's funny when I wrote the AI piece of it, it almost read like Jarvis from Iron Man, a little bit too <laughs> conversationally, and like how could you really have a conversation with a computer in that simple length? In a in a language format and still have an understand what you mean and then you know fast forward to when the book is published chat is out and I, that that whole bridge of you know could ai really be that effective and simple to use is now not something that i would have to really spend a lot of time pushing the narrative to well you know this is what's coming because it actually showed up on people's doorsteps so i
1: know it's amazing uh, how six months ago looks so different sure. or even two years ago yeah yeah exactly, sure. exactly. when so, you're talking about dali too and i'm like well if you had dali three, you probably would have done it faster or, yeah, or exactly. mid journey already yeah that's pretty yeah, cool
2: incredible you know
1: i i want to i want to pick your brain on something that I, I i like to bring up with a lot of uh with, uh, with other guests, which is this. So you're writing this style. You're writing something that many people would look at it and be like, this is a taunting feast fit that I can't do. Is a journey I can't take because maybe I feel more comfortable in a more descriptive, you know, maybe more dialogue-based, maybe a different style. So I would like your perspective as an avid re- reader and, and, and a new uh, author, how much it plays, again, your background and and how you grew up, your culture into, then turn you into a particular kind of style of writing, right? I mean, I I don't my point is I don't believe that Anyone can write everything because we're all kind of different. And I would love your perspective. You, you've been traveling. You have a specific culture and, and an experience in work. So what's your take on that? Or, and how somebody decide, this is what I want to write?
2: Um, I think I was influenced from a writing perspective. I think I was influenced more by the people that I read than I was by the product of my environment. Um, I, I enjoy the way that certain books can can um, elucidate on a story, and you know sometimes it's detail ad nauseum, but you realize that at some point later in the book that that detail was there for a purpose, not just for world building. Um, and and certain facts and figures will come out where before you thought they maybe were a bit extraneous. Uh, so I I I'm my personal I like the a little bit long. My book's like 475 pages. It's a little bit longer than a typical um, story, but I, and there maybe is a little bit in there that I could have taken out to, to make it a little bit less, but there isn't a hundred pages in there that I could shred without really impacting the story. So I really like the longer format. I think that, you know, if you want to dig into a book, it seems sometimes a little, if you really love it unsatisfying, if you get through too quickly, you know, rushing through like a, like a five-star meal. Mm -hmm. They want you to savor every morsel and the visual and everything versus just like getting to the end of it and getting dessert and getting the bill and getting out. So I like that it's a little bit longer in length. I like that there's um, the, the puzzle driven thriller genre where, you're not really just following, you know, numbers one, two, three, four, five, I and mean, everything just works out the way they should, that there's these things that would unfold to take you off on some random tangent, but finding a way to bring that back in the story so that it's all really one cohesive story, as opposed to these fragments of, of little stories is the hard part. Um, I'd like to say that I, I was like really good at it, but to be honest, this, the, the, the way that this came to me was almost, I mean, I don't want to sound like spooky fluky, like it was prophecy, but it was almost like a, I hate saying it because it's not, but a prophetic vision where I would have this idea and I would just, I would somehow visualize it as if I was watching a movie or a show and then sort of pause it. And then I'd write in as much detail to capture what I saw and then just move on to the next chapter and the next chapter. And like, what's the next you know almost fast forwarding the movie and then going back and transcribing what I saw and that was that was really um how I wrote it it was and it was bizarre because I didn't have any real fishbone done I did not or, or a map of how I wanted the book to go I didn't have you know this many chapters and this was gonna happen which really you should do I just started writing I wrote the whole thing chronologically started chapter one went to the very very end and then did a little bit of an edit but didn't really move any chapters around or, or things like that so I think I'm maybe a little bit unique from, from what I've read. I don't know that that's a great, um, method to use, but for me it was effective and I'm halfway plus or minus through the second novel, writing it in a similar fashion. Although I'm trying to be a bit more proactive on the layout than I was before only because I didn't know what I didn't know back then. And I'm trying to improve the process a little. Um, but for me, it's really the, the power of storytelling, which is why I was really interested in your podcast because, um, You know, the Jewish religion, we have the, you know, we have our Torah and and it's really replete with, with stories upon stories. And then those stories are elucidated by other stories. And to me, it's really, it's really interesting because I think the stories themselves have, you know, they've almost, they almost take on a life of themselves. They, they outlive their authors. They outlive um, their, you know, their genre or their um, publication, date, even if you call it. And they sort of just add to that tapestry of storytelling that's been passed on from generation to generation. While my book is, you know, not anything that people are going to, you know, want to model their lives around or anything like that. I think it utilize it just shows that you're using elements of stories and people, you know, biblical people in in this particular instance that were, you know, thousands of years ago and there's still, you still can find some relevance to put them into like a spy novel or an action packed, you know, puzzle driven thriller today. And they still have the same relevance, you know, and it's not like the people aren't still here. And, you know, if they're people and not an object, then there's no real physical representation of that. But the story lives on, right? The story has its own power and being able to reuse and um, integrate stories that were never really connected previously, whether it's because of a chasm of time or geography or even just genre. Um, I think it's really cool that you can bring in like Adam and Eve and the Holy grail and nanobots and AI, and you read the story and not any of them feel, um, they all feel appropriate in, in the story. And you couldn't ever read the story without having it. And so to me, that's just like, I don't I, I love the fact that I got to add my two cents to that whole thing and and to show people you know to some extent uh, as a bit of a role model. I uh, hope for my kids that you know I was at a very successful career as a real estate guy um I'm the chairman of a biotech company right now, and you know short of reading right books are are relaxation, but that's it's not anything that I would have ever envisioned that I would be able to do or write anything of of any quality that somebody would be interested in. And like I said before, I was going to, I think I'm a, a pretty proficient businessman and entrepreneur. And I was always thinking that I'd be able to share lessons and tips and tricks that I'd learned through my career with others because I had, um, I had confidence that I knew what I was talking about. And I think there were things that I could share with others that they could use in their life that would help them in their business and, you know, negotiations with their husbands, wives, spouses, you know, kids, whatever. Um, But the fact that, you know, and it was a very auspicious time and I had the opportunity to do it, but I think it's really important that people don't like yourself. I've read your bio uh, and a lot of people on your show that we're relatively set in our, professional lives and we're comfortable and we're good at it and then to do a 180 and you know go off on some other tangent where it's it's way outside of somebody's comfort zone and it's not at all what they you know had in their in their life's plan I think if you find any modicum of success with it it's a really incredibly rewarding experience in somebody's life like I' always tell people this is a it's sort of a bucket list item to write a book it wasn't a bucket list item for me but it, it sort of is now and that I um, not that I wrote a book but I I went through the process of writing a book and editing and publishing and learned an entire um, field that is so diverse from what I was comfortable with before. I think it's just the example to set for your kids that if, you know, if you don't like where you are, or even if you do like where you are, but you want to explore something different that it's never too late and, um, you have to try and, you know, sometimes you're going to fail, but in my case, I was successful with it. And, uh, and that, that can be found in every aspect of life. And so it's, it's good to be brave. It's good to, you know, that there's a, that old adage, if you're comfortable, you're not growing. And uh, <laughs> that's right. And so I decided to grow and, uh, it worked out.
1: Well, I I think you made a a perfect close to, to the episode, which made my life much easier. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I do want to add one thing, which is, you know, you, you packed a lot in this uh, last uh, piece of the conversation and, and I'm looking at the book, the cover and, and every time you were saying something like, Oh, you know, I, I'm in, um, I've done this in my past, I love technology, I'm involved in a you know biotech right now, and I'm like I, it's it's all there, right I mean I, I'm thinking the story you described, the cover of the book, and I'm like, ultimately, you write something because it, it contains all the adventures that you had in the past, all the things that you have experience all your past lives whatever you you know you want to call it and and you you kind of put it there so I think it's a great example of don't do something because you know or you think is going to sell but do something that you love and do something that you're passionate about and if you're lucky then it's going to be it's going to be a commercial success too but what I'm saying is, start from your passion, and and I think this is a, a typical great example of of that.
2: Yeah, and I think people's lives are a lot more interesting, um, and the experiences that they live are a lot more. Um, I think there's a lot more that people can share if they're just repackaged in a certain way. So, like, there's nothing in the book that's really my life story at all, and it's all very much um, arm's length fiction. Um. Again, I've tried to keep everything within the realm of possibility. It doesn't It doesn't stretch into science fiction, fantasy, or anything. Everything is a very plausible, yeah, unlikely, but a plausible outcome. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those elements I took from my boring old life. That you know, as long as you can put a kernel of truth into something, then it gives you some um, something to like sort of build upon. It's a, it's a solid foundation, and then once you build on that, you can add a couple. You know, throw in a conspiracy theory or two, and a little bit of speculation, and this boring old element becomes something really rich and you know and thought-provoking and i think everybody we, go, has
1: we, we got back know. to the beginning we all have story to tell that's right
2: everybody's um, got a story to tell
1: yeah and i want to finish with that so jeff thank you so much i really enjoyed this conversation make me think i hope it's going to make a lot of people think and Good luck with the book i will put all the notes to get in touch with you to visit your website and i, I hope people are going to read the book give it a chance sit down and take their time to go through all those pages but it sounds like it's a it's a great adventure so it's the daedalus protocol by jeff Schechter. and uh, jeff thank you so much for spending some time with me and having this conversation
2: i appreciate it thanks for having me on
1: all right, for everybody, check the notes and uh, subscribe if you like these stories. There'll be many more coming up soon on Audio Signal Podcast on ITSP Magazine. Take care, everybody.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals with Marco Ciappelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our shows. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.